Welcome everyone to the Mind Your Money podcast, a show by public.com that examines the relationship between investing, human behavior, and happiness. I'm Morgan Housel. I'm a partner at the Collaborative Fund and author of the books, The Psychology of Money, and the new book, Same as Ever, A Guide to What Never Changes. And I'm Doug Bonaparte, president at Bonafide Wealth. In this episode, we're going to talk about whether the U.S. stock market is as bad as it seems and the top issues retail investors should be worried about. We're also going to be discussing the role of luck in investing and why believing that it isn't real can be powerful for your portfolio. And with us is our good friend, Nick Majuli, Chief Operating Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management, the creator of the personal finance blog of Dollars and Data, and the amazing book, Just Keep Buying. Nick, we're so happy to have you here. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm very excited for this. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick this off, Nick. I, I first came across your work in, uh, I think it was 2017. Does that sound right? Yes, that is correct. <laughs> and I think what was, uh, what was interesting to me at the time is that it was clear to me that you understood the analytical side of investing and the behavioral side. And I feel like getting both of those is actually pretty rare. A lot of people are the math nerds of investing. And then there are some people who like really understand the soft side. But getting both together is actually extremely rare. And I, I honestly can't think of many others who have bridged it as equally as you. I know your, your blog is of dollars and data, and it is very mathematical and data, but I feel like you understand the narrative side, the behavioral side better than, any, better than, than almost anyone else too. Where did that come from? Did you always lean towards one side or the other and you had to force yourself to learn about it? Or have you always understood kind of both sides of, of investing? I would say I've, I've ebbed and flowed a lot over time. I mean... And I, and I, I'd say like right now I'm slightly more on the data side, but I've gone back and forth. Like when I first started writing, I was like very, oh, it's all data. And then as I started to kind of read even more investing stuff, I'm like, actually it's kind of way more behavior and I kind of go back and forth and they, they both obviously matter. And we all know that like to say, oh, behavior doesn't matter, which is absolutely foolish. But then to think that like numbers and the mathematics and understanding yields and things like that, like that matters too. Right. So it's a bit of both. And like, I go back and forth a lot and if we had more data on behavior, I think that's like the ideal solution that could bridge this whole gap, right? Because there's a lot of behavior arguments out there, which I think are right. But I just, I wish we had like randomized controlled trials to figure this out. And sometimes it's hard to do that. Like, how do I put like a, how do I control your mindset to think this way and someone else's mindset and then see the difference over time, right? We can't really do that trial, but there are ways we can start thinking about that. And, and you didn't necessarily have a finance background before you started doing this. Have you always been interested in investing? Uh, I was an economics major. So let's, that's like kind of finance adjacent, but there was no finance major at my school. So like I was always interested in investing, but it wasn't until like I actually started working and saving my own money and kind of actually, that's where I had to really learn personal finance. Like I honestly, this is going to sound, I mean, trust me, I went to a good school like, and I still like made the dumbest mistakes. Like there was a, I went into, well, okay, I won't say the company. I went into a comp, uh, bank one time and the guy was pitching me like, oh, yeah, you got to buy you got to buy stocks right before Christmas because Christmas sales are going to go up. And then all the you know, and the, the stock prices are going to go up. And I'm like, OK, I guess that makes sense. But I'm like, wait, that, it doesn't sound it didn't seem right. But I'm like, could that be right? Like, I and remember that I was like 23. I'm like, that's I don't know. I don't know enough. I'm like, no, that's already built. Now I know that's already built into the price. Like the sales are unless we have like way higher than expected sales. That's the only way that could happen. Right. So just like little things that I didn't even know when I was like 22 that I should have known that should have been like obvious now. Like, no, th that all those expectations are built in. And so it's like it's something I've just learned over time. It's been very interesting to kind of see that. Nick, I'm just curious about your personal finance background. Do you think these topics have always been intuitive to you or did you have to learn by error, trial and error throughout your life? I think it, most things are trial and error, like just like 
because I, you know, my parents weren't great with money. And like, I kind of grew up like, you know, lower middle class to middle class, it jumps around. That's the other thing too. your class jumps. If you really are being really honest about it, your class jumps around over time. There were times when my mom was making good money and there are times when they weren't right. And so it's like, it, it jumps around a bit. And so for me, it's always been like, you know, when I was a little kid, money to me meant like we have to order off the dollar menu at McDonald's. Now the dollar menu is not really, I mean, a thing anymore because of inflation, but for a long time, it was like the dollar menu was the thing. And that's kind of what I ordered off of even now. When I go to McDonald's, I feel weird not ordering off the dollar menu. And and Doug Doug Bonaparte can can verify this. We have done this before. So the 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 one dollar cheeseburgers are great. To be fair, yeah, I, you know, don't get me started. Nick, Nick and I have shared many a meal at McDonald's. I think we've applied some game theory and imbued it with technology, touchscreens, things like that. But yeah, you you can't even go to Taco Bell anymore. And I think I had lunch there the other day. I'm a fast food junkie. And it was like 16 bucks for like three items and the drink. I remember that being six bucks. Anyways, um, let's talk about some of the writing that you do. Um, let's talk about the state of the stock market. We sunk into correction uh, territory during the last week of October. The narrative continues to be pretty much everything around the Federal Reserve and their policy to combat inflation. Um, and your recent post questioned whether or not the U.S. stock market is as bad as it seems. It was a great piece. Why don't you kind of walk us through that? What, what's your take on the stock market not being as bad as it seems? Is it as bad? As, what, talk about those vibes. It's funny how quickly information changes, because if you'd asked me that question three, four days ago, like it would have been like a very relevant, like, yeah, we don't know. You know, the, the market's very concentrated. There's only like a handful of stocks that are leading the rally, right? And now just even in the last week, and by the time, even by the time this comes out, like the information could have changed a lot, like the yeah. market has rallied a ton of well, like 6% in the last five days. So it's like that correction territory, we're not even near that anymore. And so things can change in a flash, especially with what's going on. Of course, like, I don't think it's great that like, you know, seven companies are most of the rally, like that's not a great thing. I mean, I think generally breadth is better and people prefer having a more, you know, general gains going ever. And plus, if you're a small, if you have a small cap or a value cap tilt, like you don't want to just have like seven companies running everything. So uh, that's one thing. But uh, in terms of that post, just thinking about like, well, what about inflation? If infl I think inflation is the biggest risk factor going forward, like continued high inflation. And I, that's just uncertainty people don't want to deal with. And especially if inflation is jumping around. If if we just move to a world of 4% inflation, like people could deal with that. And I think people would rather accept 4% than a world of sometimes two, sometimes seven, right? And like everyone would prefer that. And so I think the uncertainty is still there, even though like we're having a rally now, like things are maybe looking a little better. The net worth data came out, it was looking good. Like there's a lot of positive data things coming out, but I still feel like there's a lot of uncertainty with everything that's going on. It seems like for one of the first times in history, there's a big gap between consumer confidence and what's going on in the economy. And it's usually very well correlated until like the last two years. And then it just blows to pieces. Is inflation the only variable in there that's tweaking things? Or are there other things in the economy, politics, whatever it is, that's causing such a lurch in consumer confidence? I think inflation is a piece of it. I think it's like the future of rates, which obviously affects housing. Like once it, rates kind of affect so many things that that kind of falls into like all these other buckets, right? Like just think about housing. Everyone's like, well, prices have to come down. Prices have to come down, right? It's like, well, it hasn't really happened, right? And and my take, I mean, we don't have to get into the housing thing, but my whole take is just like, I don't think people really let prices come down. I know that sounds crazy, but like I've seen so many things of like people on like community boards, you better not, don't be a coward and lower your price. Like it's people are like very much like trying to protect their, you know, their asset. And so they are very protective of lowering prices. And so I think you're going to see stuff like seller concessions and other ways in which people will quote drop prices without dropping prices, if you know what I mean. Isn't, isn't the idea that house prices have not come down yet 
is pretty much just a mark to market issue. Like when someone says my house is worth the same as it was in 2021. Well, no, it's not. There's just no mark out there to give you what the actual sales price is. Isn't that probably what's happening now? That's what a lot of private equity firms do and they are quite rich right now, but we'll see what, what happens <laughs> over time. So. So it's, yeah, I would say it's, it's hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube, right? And not just when it comes to housing. I think when it comes to the inflation that we've seen, you know, whether it's in the grocery store or consumer goods, you know, it, it, there's little incentive, I think, for, for manufacturers to lower their prices when they, you know, since the pandemic have been capable of increasing that. Um, the residential real estate side is, is still such a head scratcher to me. Um, as to how you almost would have had everyone bet that rising rates would have brought home prices down. And here we are. Um, I, you know, I did Zillow the other day there. And on top of that, no inventory to speak of whatsoever. I mean, this that's is it. I think that's like, that's the important part here. Like once people actually need to sell their house, you're going to see what the real price is. And you're going to realize that 8% mortgage rates did bring prices down by a lot. It's just, there's, mm -hmm. there's so few transactions to actually set that price right now. Yeah. And if it takes like five years before that starts to happen, it'll be like, let's yeah. say, let's say prices just stay flat. Technically, <laughs> if a, if price stay flat over five years there, I mean, all else equal inflation's up, you know, price levels are up. Technically they're down on a real, you know, on real basis. Right. So you have to think about that yeah. too. It's like prices can be like, Oh, I sold my, my house at the same price as 2021. It's like, yeah, well, an expectation is should be going at least slightly up with inflation. So maybe you did sell it for less on real terms. And so that's kind of really what matters. So in summary, the stock market is not <laughs> go from the housing market back to the stock market. You know, um, I think what I what I'm taking away from what you're saying, it's not that it's not bad. It's that, you know, here's volatility, like here's volatility in narratives. And we're going now week to week. And this is how I truly feel. We're going week to week feeling like, oh, my God, this is a mess to GDP expanded at 4.2%. Like that, like that's the grand poopah of like indicators here. And, you know, is, is Jerome Powell going to run away with a Nobel peace prize in a couple years, getting <laughs> us off the heroin of low interest rates or, you know, 2024 is, is that, are we just going to kick the can of that being the year of reckoning, you know, in which all asset prices are coming down. And I think you keep doing this on, if you're doing this on a week to week basis now, not a quarter to quarter, you're, it is exhausting. Like I, I can tell you right now in my brain, it's, it's exhausting. Now we love talking about it here for the purpose of a podcast, but you know, th these are, these are becoming weekly, daily conversations. I can't think, but to, I can't help but to think like, it's not healthy. Like that's not a healthy way to go about thinking about the economy or the markets. My fear is we're just going to get all pooped and do and, and stupid things are stupid decisions. That's how stupid decisions or bad decisions get made is when you're tired and you can't focus. Yeah. Imagine being a perma bear. <laughs> yeah. It's exhausting. I, I also think there is some kind of sad truth that if you're not happy with today's economy, what are the odds that you're ever going to be satisfied with the economy? Because it's not to say that things are perfect right now. They're not. Of course, there's many things that are Ever. not great right now, but it's never the case. And in relative terms, this might be about as good as it gets. Not, not just going forward, but even looking backwards, like this might be about as good as we've had it in my lifetime. If mm -hmm. that's not true, it's close to true. So it's like, if you're not satisfied with what's going on right now, I'm not sure that there's that much hope for you economically. Yeah. Forward. I also think there's this like nostalgia thing, like 
everyone just always overvalues the past like oh my gosh it was so much better before 08 it was so much better before this it's like we have so many things now that we didn't have and don't get me wrong i'm like there's certain like the real estate sector is struggling those people like my mother was a loan processor for like 25 30 years she can't be a loan processor anymore there's no loans coming through right so like for her and like for real estate agents they are hurting so there's localized pain that's worse like the worst like career drawdown they've ever had but a lot of other places are doing well like ai stuff like that like people now everyone can be a decent writer now because of ai like it's like you know i just mean like decent level decent communication right and so it's like there's a lot of things that have improved that are just really helpful for people and so especially if you're language challenged like i think that's incredibly useful tool was that designed to make me insecure that kind no, no, not. Oh no, it's not that good yet. Don't, don't worry, Morgan. You're fine. Yeah, Morgan, I'm gonna... Morgan sh shaking in his tims because of because uh, of Chat GPT, Housel G GPT. Nick, I bought a, a CD, a one year CD, recently for five point eight percent, which feels like honestly, it feels like robbery at, at this point. Um, but then, look, anyone's guess of, of the stock market future returns is as good as anybody else's, but. A, a pretty reasonable guess, just based off of history, like a, a historic average would be like, especially given today's valuations, let's just say the market might return 6% per year for the next decade. Maybe it's much less, maybe it's much more total mm -hmm. guess. But when you look at that, I can get an FDIC insured CD for 5.8%. Meanwhile, the stock market, pretty good guess, 6% per year. For the first time in, in my life, at least, you, you look at your choices of no risk CDs versus the stock market. And it's like, honestly, take your pick. It's how it feels like for me. Is that, is that the right or wrong way to look at it? Oh, it's definitely a, the right way to look at it in terms of like, everyone's looking at their alternatives. What else can I buy with it? Right. The only thing I worry about with like long, a one year CD is not a big deal if this were to occur, but the long thing I worry about, like, let's say you locked in, you know, the 10 year when it was at, when it barely got into 5%, which just kind of happened for a little bit. Like, what if inflation just doesn't go away and it gets actually gets worse? It's like 5% a year. Now it's like, okay, I got this five, I got this 5% 10 year, but because of inflation, I just basically got zero real return for the next decade. Right. Which is, but, but even, yeah. even in that scenario, what, what, what are stocks going to do if inflation is I mean, 7% going forward? They're, they're going to suck too. The, technically the best performing asset classes during high inflation are stocks, both uh, us international Remember this since the seventies. Right. So I don't have data before that, unfortunately, but it's, it's stocks and REITs, right? It's like, I mean, of course, REITs are getting hit because of the COVID thing, which is very different than the interest rate thing, right? So it's like there's multiple weird things going on. Like REITs should be doing really well, but because of the COVID thing, not, you know, there's a lot of commercial space that's not being used and being, re, you know, renewed. And so they're having their own little drawdown that's even worse than probably any other asset class right now, at least in terms of um, just like big, bolt, you know, generalized asset classes. So, yeah, I think it's the right way to think about it, though. No, I want to, I want to take that a step further here and, and kind of you know, throw some jabs here at both of you, uh, you know, for, so for you, Morgan, you know, 5.8% is super sexy. Anyone looking at short-term cash getting five to 6%. I mean, yeah, I think that's table stakes right now. Like if you're not getting at least 5% FDIC insured, like you're just leaving money on the table, right? You get above 5%. Um, it's just alpha <laughs> risk-free alpha, I guess you could say if, if that's a thing. Um, but then again, if you had bought that one year CD at the beginning of the year, you bought it's one year, you got 12 month play on that. Assuming we finish the year right where we're at right now, you know, not, not to timestamp this, but you're going to, you know, put that money in the market, 80, 20, what are you going to get 10% on that? Say it's nine, 10, 
you could argue, was it worth the risk premium? Just not too long ago, you missed 14% halfway through the year, not knowing where the year was going to go. So yeah. I'd rather say, hey, instead of that one-year CD to Nick's point, that 30-year CD, I, I'll tell you this, for the first time in my, not only is this year or the last and last year the first time that I've actually purchased treasuries for clients in a brokerage account. I mean, you have yeah. to also understand, I work with younger clients. So why would we have, you know, even long duration bonds, let alone treasuries of all things? This is the first time for an older client, we, I bought a 30 year treasury at 5%, right? And I would say, man, well, you know, if we're doing or writing financial plans for retirees that have forward-looking required rate of returns of, let's say, 4.3%, and I'm getting five risk-free, you know, I guess I should dump all their assets. We don't, but I guess we should dump all their assets in a 30-year bond and call it a day because I'm now getting above my required rate of return. I know taxes and everything, but let's assume that works out. Yeah. Um, and Nick, to your point, yeah, I do worry about, you know, what, what if, what if my bet, you know, on, you know, inflation or rates doesn't work out and all of a sudden I'm going to get crushed, you know, on that. Well, I would argue two things. One, you know, are we not going to get inflation under control over a 30 year period of time? I have, you know, time on my side, maybe in the near term, my purchasing power is, is crap, right? Because inflation ran away. Um, I like Morgan's argument with, you know, well, what else is going on there? Sure. You know, 1970s data is going to show you REITs and, and uh, equities are, are the better way to go. But it's hard to not think that that inflation running away wouldn't lead to somewhat disastrous or negative impacts in the economy. And, you know, if I could maybe think about Jerome Powell's playbook here, when things, to quote Morgan Housel, get wild, um, aren't we looking for the first thing to be rates coming down, right? Cut rates, all of a sudden, everyone's you know long duration becomes that performer, and you now have an option to continue collecting your coupon or go realize a capital gain. I know that got very technical here, but it seems like there's a lot more upside in long duration, you know, and and getting you know to Morgan's point, but going even longer on that. So Morgan, why didn't you buy the thirty? Why didn't you buy the thirty-year bond? Well, two two things here. One, there was a brief period last week. It's not quite like this anymore, where you could buy a ten-year agency bond. Which is not yeah. government insured, but it's like quote unquote. Unsured. Yeah, we talked. We talked about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for for seven percent for ten years. I remember looking at that, being like, "That's that's that's a, that's a good one." Josh Brown, who is who is Nick's boss, uh, he tweeted or on, on LinkedIn something to the effect of, "He's buying every ten year treasury he can at five percent," and he said, "Who cares if that's not the peak yield?" He's sleeping like a baby. I think that's a that's a point here too. It's like, who cares if you're not going to top tick the yield here? And maybe, it, you know, it was 5%. Maybe it's going to go to five and a half. Who, who knows? Who Josh's point is like, who cares? It's good enough. And for the yeah. first time in decades, you can get good enough from pretty safe assets. And like, that's a, it's such a weird thing for people like us to experience because it hasn't been like this since the nineties. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I also think, yeah, the, the only thing I worry about though, is like, I've, never owned a long duration bond because like you look at the data like risk to return ratio like you can just get the same basically same returns less risk in intermediaries now of course you can't i mean 
there are times when it, when it makes sense. Like early 80s, you got that long duration bond. Like that was a, the trade of a lifetime, right? It's actually a funny thing. I think yeah. Jim O'Shaughnessy told me the only time I ever bought bonds was in like the early 80s because like yields were just like 13 or some crazy percentage. And he like he almost top ticked it basically. Probably the world's best market time where we actually know. But like, that's the only thing I worry about is like this long duration stuff. Like I worry about like, yeah, maybe inflation gets under control, but it's under control at 4% now. That changes things a bit, but I don't know. I, it's it's just, there's, there's where everyone's talking about the same thing, which makes me think that's probably not going to happen. Like everyone's like, oh, of course, the economy is going to crash and then they're going to drop rates. And it's like, well, everyone was said that, said some other version of that like six months ago, a year ago. And then none of those things turned out to happen in that way. So like, it's fun that we all kind of agree. Like I all agree that that, that makes perfect logical sense, but it, the world never always turns out that way. And so that's kind of where we're like, uh, is that going to actually happen that way? I don't know. And so I think there's some unknown risk that we're not thinking of at this point, but we'll see. Hope I'm wrong. Higher always. for longer. That's what they say. Yeah, higher for well, longer. We're, we're, we're definitely going to find that out. And if it is higher for longer, and if it does stay here, you know, I, I will move on from this topic. But yeah, Nick, there, there's, there's a legitimate concern that could be inflation continues to rise. But it almost seems like, hey, if that doesn't happen and nothing bad happens to cause rates to come down, you're clipping, you're clipping a coupon, right? Yeah. And at no, some you can, point, yeah. even if things are healthy, if, if things are healthy, you know, businesses are still going to be pounding the table to get lower rates. Doesn't mean we're falling back to zero, but you know, a couple, a couple cuts at the discretion of the open market committee, we'll, we'll find out. So Nick, um, one of the things that you write about or have written about recently is the role of luck in investing. I know it's in your book. Uh, you talk about why you shouldn't care, even though luck is a big part of investing. Um, how do you balance that with the reality that luck plays a big role in success? Um, I think you have to just realize that like, there's a lot of things that you can't control, but there's always something you can control. Like in any situation, there's like, you can control how you think about it, how you react to it. You can control like what actions you take, even if it's like you just got a bat, you got unlucky, right? And I think my my favorite market set I've ever found, and this was just by chance that I found this, and it's just very convenient. Um, if someone outperformed the market, the, the US stock market from 1960 to 1980 by 5% a year, they made less money than someone who underperformed the market by 5% a year from 1980 to 2000. Because the market did so, so much better from 80 to 2000 than it did from 1960 to 1980. So it's like someone with yeah. with 5% alpha, which is like a good stock pick. You're not Warren Buffett, but you're pretty dang good, right? From 60 to 80 does worse on actual dollar returns than someone who has negative alpha, like a terrible stock picker got negative 5% from 80 to 2000. So that's one of those examples where that's an, that's the most extreme cherry picking you can do. So like, keep that in mind. Like that's never really how things turn out. But like, it goes to show like sometimes, you know, you know, you, you just get unlucky. Right. But like, what, what did the person 60 to 80 have that maybe the person in 80 to 2000 didn't have? I mean, they had a much worse market environment. Right. But maybe they had, um, I mean, they have to deal with the, a bubble. Right. I mean, there's also like, you can think about like, oh yeah, at the end of think about 95, right. Like you're going into the tech bubble. Like that person could be like, oh my gosh, all I've seen the market go up, they put all their money and they lose it all. Right. So they could have had more of an edge case that could have taken them out of the market. That's someone from 60 to 80, you kind of just had a kind of a, a, not a great market wouldn't have had to deal with. So there's, there's trade-offs that you don't even realize, even when you, even when you get good luck, there's, there's hidden bad luck. You may not even see. Here's what I love about that stat. <clears throat> there's so many people who will be like, Oh, here's how to increase your luck. There's a lot of stuff like threads on social media, like increase the surface mm -hmm. area of your luck. I, whenever I see that, I'm like, no, if you can do something to change it, then it's not luck by definition. Mm -hmm. What your stat is, is actual luck, which is just when you're born. 
You cannot change when you are born or where you are born. That to me is what luck is. If if there is anything that you can possibly do to change it, then it is not luck. And so Mm -hmm. it's important to talk about real luck versus like, you know, nuanced skills or whatever it would be. And that's just such a great example. Let's not pretend that if you and I were born in different eras, we would have the same wealth creating opportunities when I, it's, and that was completely and utterly outside of our control. Exactly. And so in terms of what you're talking about, Doug, with like, how does that, how can that impact in the stock market? Like, just like, well, right now we're talking about like, can you be putting some more of your money into like a, a safer asset class, right? Like treasuries or something like that, or to hedge. There's, there's all sorts of things you can do, right? I've heard of people, I have a friend who, and he has this theory, it's actually pretty decent. So in his 529 for his kids, he's like, I'm going to put all that money that I save in there into like education stocks. And the idea is if education keeps going up, these stocks in theory are like, a, they will go up with the price of education. So it's hedging. And if education prices go down and I lose money in there, or don't make as much money relative to the S&P, that's fine because I'm just hedging to the educational cost, which is the actual cost I care about. And so like, that's an example of like someone thinking through like maybe this, and I don't know if that's going to make sense. I think it makes sense logically, whether that actually makes sense in a back test or anything, I have no clue, but it's one of these things like if education costs keep going up, you probably want to get something that's like moving with that cost as, as much as possible. That that's the underpinnings of um, some of these uh, they're, like they're called prepaid uh, programs. I know Florida has a prepaid program where you're basically locking in the cost of tuition today, regardless of where, you know, it's going to be some exit, you know, some hatches, safety hatches to get out and take that money and, and go to if you don't go to that state school system. Mm-hmm. But that's pretty clever. And, and I do have a number of clients who, who participate in that. Um, I think that's more of a, you know government driven solution versus I'm, I'm now curious and we'll be researching how um, individual stocks and mutual funds are being selected inside of a child's 529 plan. I bet there's some self-directed uh, option out there that I'm unaware of, but that that's pretty crafty. I'm, I'm happy to hear that your friend is investing in education stocks and not, you know, YOLOing, uh, you know, small cap, you know, altcoins, you know, for their child's future education here. Yeah, not not yet as far as I know, so. Soon, soon, soon moon. Nick, one, one last question here. Just curious if you've read any, any great books lately. What have you read, finance-related or not, that really caught your attention lately? Dude, that, okay. that, 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 that is a setup, Morgan. That is a setup. No, it's not. It. Yeah, it Nick, is. Nick, Nick hasn't read my book, I don't think, so it's not. No, I haven't, I haven't gotten your book yet, Morgan, in the mail. See? So <laughs> That's it. That's actually not a setup. I'm 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 messing around. So great book I read recently. Uh, It's called How to Stay in Love. This is not a finance book, obviously. It's written by a divorce attorney, actually, believe it or not. And it's really interesting. He talks about a lot. He's like, I've sat down with so many couples. And I think this is really important because I, you know, why am I not talking about a finance book right now? Because the thing that probably affects your happiness the most is like, you know, who you choose to partner with. And more importantly, you know, obviously, if you stay happy with that person, that's even more important. So like, how do you avoid like the exits? How do you avoid like divorce basically and so he talks like here's all the type of people that come in here and he's like he, it's basically a book of what not to do and a kind of what to do based on what not to it's kind of like the inversion like you know charlie munger always invert and so i find it really entertaining it's super interesting and also it's like you know it's something that affects our lives and we don't think about a lot and it's like oh my gosh i never thought about that for example one idea which i thought was really interesting he's like i find that couples after they divorce they are actually happier with how they do because they're when they're splitting the kids and like, okay, I take them one week, you take them one week. They're actually happier than when they were together because they have breaks from the kids, which allows them to kind of have their own time. And so he's like, what you can do as a married couple is like, maybe you institute, you know, you have two weekends a month, you're with your spouse and the kids. 
one week in a month, you have a solo weekend where you can do whatever you want. You have no child duties and then vice versa for your, your partner. And so it's like, it's an interesting way to like, Hey, instead of being on all the time, you have a break where you can, you know, do whatever, read, go out with your buddies, like whatever. And so that's an example of like something he found in like the divorce data that kind of seems applicable to people who are happily married. And so I don't know, but that's like, an, I'm like, oh, wow, that's a cool idea. Maybe like if, well, the day I have kids and all that, maybe we'll try that one day. I don't know. And so it's just interesting to kind of get into that. So how to, how to uh, stay in love is, is the book. I think his name is James Sexton is the, is the author. And if, and if none of that advice works, you can become his client. As a, it's, yeah, it's a well, win-win yeah. <laughs> Yo, he like it's, it's like it's card. a self-help book where if it fails, he still wins, right? It's a it's genius actually wins. when you think about it. It's so how many times like hey, yeah, if it doesn't work, I'll see you soon. Like exactly. <laughs> that's that's the pro. That's the prologue to the book. So it did. So it didn't. Yeah, you know, like chap, like XI. So it didn't work out. You know, here's what to do next. Exactly. Nick, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. All right. Thanks, you, guys. Buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. All right. Um, man, love that. Love that, Nick. He's absolutely fantastic. Um, so, Morgan, you've been putting out some great work lately. Everyone's now getting super excited to read book number two, same as ever, but you still do pump out the blog. Another idea that you've written about is called Return on Hassle. I want you to walk us through this and explain how it ties into investing. Uh, excuse me, investing. Basically, can we can we do less work to get more returns? What's what's the hassle here? Well, I think it actually applies most to to investing. This idea of return on hassle. Because why are you earning superior returns in the long term on the stock market? It's because you have to put up with an endless parade of volatility and setback and nonsense and BS. That, that's the return. It's the return on hassle. It's not return on innovation. It's not return on like good, it's a return on, on uncertainty. And then once you view it like that, you're like, okay, that's the cost of admission. That's what I have to be willing to put up with. And I've seen so many times, whether it's an individual or a company where people have absolutely no tolerance for BS, like none no tolerance in their life. You see this, like if your flight's delayed by 10 minutes, you'll see there's one person in the gate that's going to lose their mind. There, there, there's always at least one person, if not many people. They're, they're, at, the, you see, they're at the counter, the minute, minute yes. the sign says and you see that they have, there. And whenever I see that, look, I, I get frustrated by delayed flights too, as someone who travels a lot. But when I, always, when I see it, I'm always like, how do you have no wiggle room in your personality to handle setback and nonsense and frustration? And annoyance because that's all life is. I've always yeah. thought like everyone's life needs a 20% allowance for, 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 for BS in any given yeah. day, 20%, you need to work in 20% of like, things are not going to go according to plan. And if you don't have that, it's a constant chain of disappointment. Yeah. And so I think that's really true in the stock market too, not just for normal volatility, but for whatever it is, economic setback, government shutdown, COVID, like all, all of these kind of things. And if you can have that allowance for that, just in your mindset, I think like that's what you're actually getting paid to do over time is to put up with that. So it's just, it's just a little mental framework for understanding what, like where returns come from and what you need to be able to put up with in investing. So, you know, as, as human beings encoded in our DNA, we've mentioned this before, like go back far enough in time. It, it's, it's don't die today. Like that's the mission. Like don't let saber tooth tiger eat you. Don't let, you know, lion maul you try and get some food for yourself and, you know, your tribe. And you have, you have a very low bar for a good day. 
Yeah, yeah. Don't eat poison. Like if you <laughs> sit and and the pro, and the big prize is you get to do it all again the next day. And I don't know. May, maybe you are successful for like twenty four years before you end up like I don't know going into the wrong part of the jungle, right? And now we live in a world where, you know, we can blame Jeff Bezos and Amazon, you know, anything can come to your door in a day or two. We, we've done a very, very good job of making the hassle so hassly for ourselves with how much easier we've made things. It's like, uh, what, what a double-edged sword there. Great. The world is, is all that much better. And we're so impatient that we can't even, appre- can't even appreciate yeah. how I mean, good people- we have it. I mean, people who are young won't realize that before Amazon, if you ordered something online, it was two weeks to come to your house. And by the way, it didn't bother us. We, we no, knew you were like, excited. Yeah, you were you excited. Were so, it showed up. They have, they have to ship it from a warehouse in Missouri. Of course, it's not going to be here in six hours. But it's, <laughs> so you're right that Amazon kind of ruined that. So now if, if you order something on Amazon and you're like three days, it's going to take three days to get it. Why? why what happened? So like, yeah, I think there is that paradox of technology where – Technology usually takes away inconvenience. It takes away hassles. And because of that, like that's great, but it also reduces your allowance for hassle. And therefore, you're more likely to be frustrated in a world where there's all this new technology. And I think it's true in in investing too. It's like, particularly during periods when things are going well, you have a year like, I think it was 2017, where the market just went straight up every month. There was like no pullback. And what that does, like A, that's awesome. That's fun. But also what that does to your mindset is just like it it pushes you towards thinking that that's the normal and like that's how the market works. Whereas the reality is like you, you're you going to get paid by putting up with yeah. constant nonsense. I, I, love, I love that you have so many data points and understand you had to go back to 97 when you could have easily done 2020 and 2021. So thank you for taking us back. Your nostalgia to our youth is showing. Um, but yeah, I mean, look how, look at the humbling, you know, that took place in 2022 last week, but we're out of that, but yeah, you get to 2022 and you realize, you know, maybe your rocket ship to the moon wasn't really, you know, destined to get out of the atmosphere. And now, now we're just in, you know, week to week mode of, well, which way are things going to go? Um, so yeah, thanks technology. I'm, I'm seriously glad. And, and by the way, I was serious about, you know, the excitement of that package arriving after, you know, waiting, you know, you want that thing. It's got to get out of that Missouri warehouse. It shows up there. You know, I always do Simpsons references. It's, it's where's my spy camera, you know, Bart like literally orders his little, you know, spy camera from collecting cereal box coupons. And the postal worker is so upset after literally three weeks of where's my spy. camera. I was like, here's your fricking spy camera. And Bart's just happy as can be. All right. You've also written, I think, earlier last month about being bold versus being reckless with a uh, with a character from history that hard to miss his statue at Grand Central Terminal. It's Mr. Vanderbilt. Walk us through this real quick, because I, I really did enjoy this piece. Talk us Talk to us about the difference between these two things. Well, there's so much. If you learn about the history of Cornelius Vanderbilt, you realize that so much of his success, and he was ridiculously successful in shipping on 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 boats and 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 in railroads. He was just an, he was a, a pure quintessential tycoon. And if you go back and read the history of how he did it, he was and he was vocal about this. He was breaking laws left and right. That was part of like how he gained market share 
yeah. is a lot of his competitors would be like, well, we can't break the law. And he would just come in and be like, the hell we can't watch me. Yeah. And, and, and he got away with it. And so there's two ways to think about that. One, you could look at him and be like, what a, what a rebel, what a, what a rogue player. Like he didn't let those, that red tape get in his way. <laughs> or you could look at him and be like, he was a criminal who just happened to get away with it. And then you can also imagine this alternative history where he was not the super tycoon that we remember him as today, but he was a criminal who got put in jail. Like, like that easily, easily could have happened. So that's the line between bold and reckless. Was he bold or was he reckless? And we often just measure it by the outcome that actually happened versus the outcome that easily could have happened in the other direction. And so it's really hard to tell. The other like more modern example I use is in 2007, I think it was, Mark Zuckerberg was offered a billion dollars cash for Facebook and he turned it down. He said no. And we look at that today and we're like, what a genius. He was so smart to not have done that. But it easily, 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 easily could have gone the other way. Because at that very same time, like it was like within the same couple of months, Yahoo was offered, I think, $50 billion from Microsoft. Microsoft wanted to buy Yahoo for $50 billion. Yahoo turned it down. And now Yahoo is worth, I don't know, but a small fraction of that. So we look at Yahoo and we're like, you idiots, you should have taken the deal. But Mark Zuckerberg kind of did the same thing and he looks like a genius. So what is bold and what is reckless? I think it's it's impossible to know other than like we we, we only look at how something turned out. And even if the odds of, of that happening were very, very low, we look at the result and judge it by the result versus like probably like, like measuring it by probability at the time. Was this actually a smart decision? Do you think Vanderbilt's level of wealth and power at the time relative to what that power and wealth would be today made it easier for him to circumvent the law then? Would he have a harder time doing that today with that kind of wealth and power? Because there's plenty of wealthy, that, that level wealthy people and that level powerful people. What, what do I mean, you certainly, think? Certainly during the Gilded Age of the late 1800s, whether it was Vanderbilt or Rockefeller or J.P. Yeah. Morgan or the Carnegies, a, a lot of the kind of the reckoning of the Gilded Age was, you know, in the early to mid 1900s, ordinary people saying these robber barons screwed everybody else at their own expense. And we're not going to let that happen anymore. So a lot of that was kind of reversed uh, just culturally starting around the 1920s, definitely during the New Deal in the 1930s, where it was like, you can't do that anymore. We're not going to yeah. let you do that. We're going to set up all kinds of new rules and regulations to make sure you cannot do that anymore. But during the Gilded Age of the 1800s, it was kind of accepted. It was easier and more acceptable to pay off politicians and pay off regulators than it would be today. Not to say that that doesn't happen today, but it's, it's, it, you have to be more discreet about it today than you could back then. So could they yeah. do it today? Like, no, probably not. It's not to say that people can't donate money to super PACs today and get a lot of what they did. As you and I are recording this, Sam Bankman fried was just uh, found guilty yeah. yesterday. And a big part of what he did was, did was just sending dump trucks filled with money to politicians. And yeah, so it's not to everyone. say it doesn't happen today, but it was, it was explicit back then. Right. And, and you're right. The, vi the visibility of it all. I mean, you could grease some wheels and no one would ever see, you know, the grease being poured on those wheels. I think everybody saw Sam Bankman, you know, pull up the truck you know, from from O'Leary to Brady to donations to politicians, it was right in your face. I think it's very hard to be right in your face if you were, you know, um, you know, JP or um, or Cornelius or or the Rockefellers. Um, 
this might be a stretch, but I just finished watching the the Gotti documentary on Netflix called, you know, Get Gotti. And yeah. um, <laughs> it's good. It, it's good because we're so far past, you know, that era that all the people, all the mobsters involved who are not in jail or dead are are freely talking about like, everything i guess they feel like you know hey we have we have no power now and this is all just you know stuff in the movies but one thing that i'm kind of trying to connect that to now granted he was a murderous thug mafia boss and you know cornelius vanderbilt was building the country's infrastructure and you know you know doing things albeit not legally he at least i don't know him to be you know murdering people on, on the regular um but um you know, Gotti had that power and influence, just like um, Cornelius Vanderbilt was being vocal about, you know, what he was doing. So was Gotti. <laughs> like, yeah, they were, they were was, trying to hide. They were never trying to hide it. No, it was just loved, it was just vocal. He loved it. He he won the hearts and minds of New Yorkers. Meanwhile, he's committing atrocities and crime, you know, to those very New Yorkers. So. Yeah, I don't know. That's my gaudy Vanderbilt connection there, but it, it does this, go to show you they're doing it and play, you know, just doing it out there, being vocal. There's this line in one of the Vanderbilt biographies where uh, he's 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 getting a deal done, and his business partner says, "Cornelius, do you understand that you just broke ev- like all this long list of laws with that deal?" And then he says, "My God, do you think you become this rich by following the laws?" Like, of, of course, of course, you know, like, I don't follow the laws. Are you kidding me? Like, it was preposterous to him that somebody would. And so, again, like, we look at, I mean, the first time I read that, I was like, ah, oh, like, what a, what a, what a maverick swinging for the fences. But then I was like, this guy should be in jail. This guy, there's another, there's another instance where John D. Rockefeller was being taken to task in court. And the judge says he's no different from a common crook. He's just much wealthier and he dresses better and he's like more polite. And so, uh, so that's, it's, there's definitely all these alternative histories on how these could have come out, including back in the 1990s, antitrust tried to break up Microsoft. It didn't work. It failed, but there's all these alternative histories of what these companies that we look up to and admire could have been if there was a different, I, I guess, moral backbone during those days. Yeah, I can only imagine what Enron, WorldCom, <laughs> all these right. companies, Arthur Anderson, what would have happened if they didn't cook the books and screw <laughs> everybody over? What what could have been? Oh, man. All right. Let's, uh, let's pump the brakes here. I think that'll do it for this episode of Mind Your Money. If you enjoyed listening in, be sure to tap the subscribe button and keep up to date with our latest shows. Thanks once again for tuning in, and we will see you next time.